Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Uh, Today we're in the book of Jonah. If you guys would turn there in your Bibles, Jonah chapter one. We're going to uh, start this new study uh, today, and we're going to kind of go through quickly through the book of Jonah. I'm going to take four weeks to go through these four chapters, so today we're going to look at Jonah chapter one, if you guys would turn there. We'll also put the words on the screen. I'm going to read the first six verses, and then we'll pray together. It says in verse one, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord, verse four, hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Uh, Father, we come to you this morning and we want to learn who you are through the book of Jonah. So we pray that by your spirit, you'd teach us today and in the weeks that are following about who you are from this book, your nature, your character, who you are. Uh, Lord, we also pray today as we think about you as ascending God, that we would be a people who appreciate the fact that you have sent your only begotten son and that you also send us who believed in him into this world as salt and light. So help us, Lord, we pray. We need your wisdom and discernment as to how to be your testifiers, your witnesses here in this world. But thank you, Lord, for being ascending God, and we ask that you'd speak to us from this chapter in your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we don't know a whole lot of background details about this man, Jonah. It says here in the first verse that he's the son of a man named Amittai, uh, but there is precious little background material in the pages of Israel's history Uh, about this prophet. The tiny bit that we do know of background material comes from the book of 2 Kings chapter 14. Uh, He was alive during a time where a king named Jeroboam was reigning in Israel. And during Jeroboam's reign, Israel went through a long period of difficulty and darkness where they suffered many military losses to the nations around them. Jonah came onto the scene and prophesied that the borders would be restored in Israel. That's what we learn 
in 2 Kings chapter 14. The restoration of the borders was the prophecy that Jonah had to the people of Israel. It was a prophecy that was good news. It's the kind of prophecy that any Old Testament prophet would love to receive from God. So often they had to say very hard things to God's people, but to be able to cruise out amongst God's people and say, good days are coming, that was a real blessing. And so that was what Jonah walked in in the past. But here we learn that though Jonah in his past had been a prophet about good news in Israel, here in this opening paragraph, God tasks him with bringing bad news to the people of Nineveh, a city over 500 miles away from Israel. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. So This prophet who in the past had a positive message for God's people is now tasked with a negative message for people who are not yet God's people. But Jonah did an uncharacteristic thing, at least uncharacteristic for a prophet, kind of characteristic for a human. He ran away from God's presence. He ran away from God's will for his life. And he decided, it says over and over again in this opening paragraph, that he went, he wanted to go to a city called Tarshish. Now, people debate about where Tarshish was located at that time, but generally everybody agrees that it was in the opposite direction of Nineveh, and very far away from Israel. So God wanted, Nineveh, wanted Jonah to go this way, and Jonah decided, I'm gonna go this way. He finds a boat that takes him on as a passenger, and in verse three, that ominous phrase, he paid the fare, and he went down into the boat to settle in for a long journey. Uh, we know the story, of course, God would not allow Jonah to get to Tarshish. Instead, he, it says in verse four, hurled a great wind upon the sea that created a massive storm, a big tempest that was about to break the ship apart, so much so that these experienced sailors did not dismiss this as just any other storm. They began crying out to their deities, to their gods. And of course, as a reader of the Bible, you would expect that nothing would happen as a result of that prayer to the gods of idols, and sure enough, nothing happens. And so the captain comes and wakes Jonah so that Jonah can pray to his God. Maybe this storm is the result of something you have done, so cry out to your God. Now, some people wonder if that sense of rest that Jonah was in was caused by a false sense of peace. You know that we sometimes experience this when we run from God's will for our lives, everything will flow smoothly for a little while until God interrupts our plans. And maybe that's what Jonah was going through. Maybe he was experiencing peace as he fled from God's desires for his life. But I wonder if perhaps Jonah was merely a land-loving, seasick, guilty prophet who's like, man, I just gotta go to the bottom of the boat and sleep this off. I'm so seasick, I feel so guilty, I'm doing the wrong thing, I know I am. I've never been out on the ocean like this before. Hebrew people were generally terrified of the ocean, thought of it as a deep mystery, and so I think he was probably just down there going, I just gotta ride this out. But the big question that we need to ask in this opening paragraph is why did Jonah run? 
This is the major question, not just of this part of his story, but of the whole book. If you don't answer that question correctly, I don't think you'll understand the point of the book of Jonah. Some people think that Jonah ran because he was terrified of what might happen to him in the city of Nineveh. Nineveh, as I said, was the capital city of Assyria, and they were notorious for treating prisoners in brutal ways. When they went into war, they would do things that would make your skin crawl if I began to report them to you today. And we even have records of kings of Assyria from Jonah's era and time who wrote down boasts of the gruesome war crimes that they had committed. And so it stands to reason that perhaps what Jonah is thinking is, if I go to Nineveh, they might do some of the things that I've heard that they've done to others to me. And so perhaps he didn't want to go because he was afraid. But this reason, it overlooks, I think, the rest of the book of Jonah. I don't mean to spoil the whole book for you, but I will tell you what happens at the end. Eventually, Jonah will get to Nineveh. He will preach to Nineveh. The people of Nineveh will repent of their evil, and God will relent from the judgment or disaster that he said he was going to bring against them. And in Jonah chapter four, what we'll study together is that Jonah, when he saw this, when he saw God relent from the judgment that he said he was going to bring, it displeased Jonah greatly. And he actually prayed this prayer to God. He said in Jonah four, verse two, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So what that tells us is that Jonah's reason, listen to this, his reason for rebelling against God had to do with what he knew about God. You know, other prophets, they'd predicted judgment on the surrounding nations. They'd done this before. Many other prophets had proclaimed that the evil in other nations would, be, would bring judgment upon them, but they'd always done so from the safe confines of Israel. They'd never had to travel to the places that they were prophesying against. And what that meant is that the prophecies generally weren't even for the nations that God said he was going to judge. They were for the people of Israel that even though these foreign powers with all of their military might felt like a threat, God is saying, I see their evil and I'm going to judge them for it. But Jonah now knows that this is different. God is asking him to go to Nineveh. And because he knows that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, he suspects that the reason that he's going is because God might allow his grace and mercy and love and patience to be unleashed upon the people of Nineveh. And Jonah did not like that. He was used to telling God's people that their borders would be restored. He didn't wanna tell people who were far from God even a word of judgment, lest they repent and become God's people. And this is where I wanna make my first real point of this sermon today, that God is a sending God because it's his nature. 
God is a sending God because it's his nature. He sends us into the world to declare the gospel. He sent Jonah to the Ninevites. He sent, of course, his only begotten son. God sends because it's his merciful, gracious, patient, loving nature to do so. But though Jonah's theology about God was accurate, though Jonah believed the right things about God, though he knew that God was gracious, he only liked it when it applied to him and his people, not when it applied to those people, the Ninevites. So Jonah decided to live out his own nature rather than allow his actions to flow from what he knew about God. That's why I'm calling our study of the book of Jonah, I'm using the word unhitched to describe this book. Because to me, like a train car that is unhitched from a locomotive, Jonah was unhitched from God. God's heart, God's nature, God's direction, God was going somewhere, but Jonah would not allow his destination to be dictated by where God was going. Though God had revealed himself way back in the law to Moses on Mount Sinai of all places as the one who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, though Jonah knew this about God, he would not let his actions be dictated by who God was. Jonah should have seen who God was and then lived in a way that represented God's nature well. Instead, he was unhitched from who God is. I almost called this study, the caboose is loose. <laughs> because I just have that image of the caboose just not connected to the locomotive. It's not going where the locomotive is going. Jonah is like that. He's like that last car on the train, unhitching himself and refusing to go into Ninevite territory with God. And I want you to make no mistake, God is the main character of this book, it's not Jonah. Jonah is there, he's present, but the book is primarily designed to teach us about who God is. He's mentioned in the book twice as much as Jonah is. He does twice as much as Jonah does. He's active throughout the whole story. In this first chapter, he sends Jonah. In the second chapter, after causing a storm and sending a great fish, God listens to Jonah. In the third chapter, after seeing Nineveh's repentance, God responded to the Ninevites' prayers for mercy. And in chapter four, he tolerates a little temper tantrum from his prophet for a little while, and then he turns and trains, teaches his prophet. He is the one working in this book. His prophet is defective, but God is not. He's still executing his mission. And the big mission of God in or with the book of Jonah was not to reach the Ninevites. It was to reach his people. Jonah knew the right things about God. He had the right doctrine of God. He was orthodox about God, but he didn't understand the magnitude of God's grace, so he hated the people of Nineveh. And this book was originally written for an Israelite audience who had the same difficulty understanding grace that their prophet had. As God's people, they were called to be a light to the nations, 
a kingdom of priests to a world in need of God, but they'd become insular, angry, entitled, and fearful. And so they couldn't fulfill their mission. They forgot how God's grace had reached them in the past and was meant to flow through them in the present. God's actions throughout the book of Jonah were meant to retrain them to let their actions better represent God's nature. Now here's the thing, we're not the people of Israel. We're reading and studying this book almost 3,000 years after its events occurred. But we live in a time where Jesus has already come. Jesus has risen from the grave. He's fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. So the book of Jonah now belongs to us as well, his church. We are God's people, and God's message is just the same. Understand who I am, he would say to us. I am gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and I sent my son as a result of that to save people from their sin. And I want you to deliver this message to all nations, even when it's scary. So that's the first movement of the book. We learn that God is ascending God. Let's read the second little movement in verse seven through 10. It says that the crew in verse seven said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him in verse 10, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Okay, in this little section, this little movement of the story, the crew, along with Jonah, they cast lots to try to figure out who the cause of this storm is. They all feel that it is obviously supernatural in nature. This is no normal storm. There's something divine or supernatural behind it. So they cast lots. This might have consisted of them taking a bag filled with black stones that had one white stone in it. And whoever drew the white stone was the one. Or there were a number of other ways that the ancient people would cast lots or try to discern the mind or the intentions of the divine. All book long, God is gonna flex his sovereignty. He's gonna tell a fish where to go. He's gonna tell a plant what to do. He's gonna tell a worm what to do. In fact, everybody in the book of Jonah is obedient to God except for Jonah. <laughs> and here, God even tells the lots what to do, the dice what to do, flexing his sovereignty, and it falls on Jonah. And immediately, the sailors, they begin interrogating Jonah with an avalanche of questions. And I think all of these questions are kind of embarrassing. They had embarrassing answers. Like one of the first things they asked, what is your occupation? The answer to that question, I, well, I'm one of God's prophets. What's a prophet? Well, we, we go wherever God tells us to go, and we say whatever God wants us to say, except for right now. <laughs> Or where do you come from was another one of their questions. Well, I, I come from Israel. It's the, it's the promised land. It's the place that God decided 
in this era that he would dwell inside of his temple. It's the best place on earth, but I am leaving it right now. (laughs) And who are your people? Who are your people? Well, we're Hebrews. We're God's specially called people right now that we might demonstrate the true God to the lost world. But I'm really not into it right now. That's not what I want to do. Jonah, though he hears these questions and leading with his identity as a Hebrew, he begins to reveal to them that he was a God lover, but that he was at that moment fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Okay, I've already said to you today that God is ascending God and that this action flows from his nature. But I wanna add that God sends his people, which is his nature, so that we might represent him. And the assumption is so that we might represent him well, of course. Now Jonah here, we all would confess, is not doing a good job of that at this stage. Uh, I mean, it's tempting to call this study Jonah, what not to do. I mean, he's the exact opposite of what you wanna be in representing the Lord to the world in which you live. And here we have him on the boat with these pagan, unbelieving, Gentile sailors interrogating him. You might have even noticed in verse 10 when they say, what is this that you have done? That most translators don't put a question mark at the end of that, but an exclamation mark. And the reason that they do that is because it's not a question. It's an accusation. It's, it's a charge. It's a rebuke. The world saying to God's prophet, why are you doing this? How could you behave in the way that you've behaved? Jonah was not, at this point, a good representative for God. He had a lot to learn. Now, of course, we know in our modern time, polls after, poll after poll shows us this. People say oftentimes that they refuse to believe in God and his gospel. gospel. Uh, Many people will give the reason because of hypocrisy in the church. Um, It reminds me of the character in Moby Dick who sought to learn from Christian sailors but said that the practices of whalemen soon convinced him that even Christians could be both miserable and wicked, infinitely more so than all his father's heathens. And I think if we're honest, we we can relate to that. We're not perfect people. Uh, We can't and don't always and at all times represent Jesus without error. I mean, if you've trusted in the Lord, then you've been regenerated. He's given you a new nature, but you still have your body of sin. You still have your old appetites. And sometimes, if we're honest, those appetites lead us down a path where we do not represent the Lord well. It's inconsistent with him and his gospel at those times. What what should we do? Should we strive for perfection? We know that's not going to happen. We know that's a fool's errand. Instead, I think what we need to do is be humble and contrite when we do fail. We need to demonstrate the very grace that we pray and hope and expect that God will extend to the world in which we live. Jonah had fallen short, yet God used even his rebellion to reach people. I mean, these sailors, they never would have had this encounter with God if Jonah had just obeyed God right off the bat. I'm not advising that you rebel against God so that you can reach more people. 
But what I'm trying to say is that because Jonah began to confess what he'd done, humbly repent of what he'd done, God began to use it in the lives of others. You don't have to be a perfect person, but you should not act as if you're perfect. You must say, I need the grace of God. You must apologize, repent, and confess. We're called to represent the Lord. Now Jesus told us, of course, that we're to love God and that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is part of us representing the Lord well. This love of our neighbor, we get cool and good practice for that in the church. In one sense, you could say that your life in the body of Christ is like training wheels for loving the people of this world because loving each other isn't always easy, but it is the first step. Jesus said that they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Reminds me of a, a pastor friend of mine who I was talking to recently from another state, uh, not any of the guys on our staff. And he told me this story about his kids that after he was done, I was like, you gotta let me tell that story to my church. He's like, somebody's gotta tell the story and I can't, so go for it. But he was telling me about his two young elementary aged boys. And after one Sunday church service, as is often the case with pastors' kids, uh, they were just bored, waiting for their parents to finally get done talking to people so that they could go home or go out to lunch or whatever. So the church sanctuary was empty and they began roughhousing. They were kind of playfully just fighting against each other and wrestling and doing all this stuff. And finally, one of them was in search of a weapon, you know, some way to do damage against his brother. And he found one of the pew Bibles, you know, one of the church's hard back bound Bibles. And he took it and he threw it at his brother and he connected, connected, <laughs> connected just below the waistline. And it hurt so bad that they actually had to take a little trip to the ER. The little guy is okay, and when I heard the story, he was already okay, so I was laughing my head off when I heard this story. <laughs> and I immediately, when he told me this story, I said, that reminds me of how we often treat each other, using even the Bible <laughs> to attack someone else. <laughs> but that must not be. Love must predominate among the church for the church because who wants to join a warring family? <laughs> now, we might resist some of this exhortation. You know, there might be a little feeling in you that says, you know, the world has no business assessing the performance of the church like these sailors assessed the performance of Jonah. But Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This seems to imply that people, like the sailors did, will assess our lives and perhaps are even expected to do so. Paul said it this way of himself and his ministry team. He said, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Think of that. There are people in this world who will never read a Bible, but what if they were to read the Bible by reading you? 
That's what Paul is saying. I'm an ambassador of Christ. It's like God who is making his appeal to the world is appealing to the world through me. So we should want to represent this sending God well. Okay, but let's look at the last and final movement of the passage in verse 11 to the end of the chapter. It says, then they, the sailors, said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, verse 14, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord, verse 17, appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, in this final movement of the opening story, the sailors who've already determined that Jonah is the cause of this worsening storm, uh, they ask Jonah, they say, hey, what should we do with you? If you're the cause of this storm, then what should we do? What will appease your God? And Jonah tells them in verse 12, he says, you need to pick me up and you need to hurl me into the sea. If you do that, the sea will be calm for you. Now, Jonah had grown up his whole life thinking that if uh, pagan, unbelieving, Gentile sailors had a chance to throw a Jewish prophet into the Mediterranean, they would do it in a heartbeat. So he was probably surprised when they began rowing to try to get back to shore. They didn't wanna have his blood on their hands. But when it finally became obvious that they had no other choice, these men started praying to God, to Jonah's God. And they asked for mercy and they threw Jonah Overboard, And I think that these men probably were converted in this moment because the sea ceased to rage and rather than forget God, now that peace had come into their experience, they offered a sacrifice and made vows to God. Even after the storm calmed, they are worshiping the Lord. Now the story was over for the sailors at that point, but it was not over for Jonah God appointed this great fish, it says in verse 17, to swallow up his prophet. Probably this was a large whale. The Hebrew people, as I said earlier, were distant from the sea, often terrified of the sea, and they'd use the same word for large fish to describe a large fish or to describe a large whale. And Jonah, rather miraculously, I think, was in the belly of the fish, for at least part of three days and three nights. Now the question that we should ask of this movement to wrap up today is why did Jonah tell the sailors to throw him into the sea? Why did Jonah tell them, if you want the sea to calm, you gotta throw me into the ocean? Some people think that Jonah said this to them because he was still seething in anger over his assignment to Nineveh. 
So he's resigning himself in the, at this point to death. If this is true, then he's saying something like, I don't wanna go to Nineveh. I'd rather die than have to come back to Israelite territory and tell the people of Israel that the prophet who has told them that their borders would expand just went and preached a life-saving message to the capital of Assyria. I'd rather die than go through that experience. So throw me overboard and this will all be over. Other people think that Jonah was on the exact opposite end of the spectrum emotionally, that he'd had a major change of heart there on the boat. But through the events of the storm and the kindness of the sailors, that it brought him to a place of compassion. If this is true, then Jonah is saying something like, you've been so kind to me, I've had realizations about you that have broken the mold of what I thought Gentile sailors would be like. I can clearly see that you are still made in the image of God, and I want you all to live. And there's only one way for that to happen. I have to die instead of you. Throw me overboard. Now, the second view is appealing to us as Jesus people because it sounds so Jesus-y. You know, it's, you've got the one who is laying down his life for everyone else, but it does forget Jonah's attitude in the rest of the book. It's not like he came out of the fish and was like, yippee, I can't wait to go to Nineveh and preach to them. He was still angry when the Ninevite people believed and God showed his mercy to them. I think the truth of Jonah's attitude was probably somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. I mean, this was a human moment. This isn't a fable. This isn't just some clean story. This was a very human moment. He's in the middle of this crazy storm. Linear, tempered, logical thought is ancient history at this point. He's probably a mix of adrenaline and fear and regret and depression and anger, along with maybe the recognition of what his actions had done to this group of sailors. He probably looked at their anxious faces and realized, wow, they're humans too. But years of nationalistic enthusiasm probably also colored or clouded his mind. Nevertheless, he came to the right conclusion. I have to go overboard, I have to die instead of you. And I wanna say this, I don't know if Jonah's heart was truly loving at this point, but I do know from the Bible that true love is substitutionary in nature. Jonah sacrificed himself and he substituted himself for everybody else on that boat. And because he did that, he became a picture of Jesus, the one who substituted himself for all of humanity on his cross. Even Jesus pointed this out. They came to him and they said, give us a sign, show us a sign. And he said, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is where I wanted to make my last point for the morning. Yeah, God sends because it's his nature. Yeah, God sends us to represent him. But ultimately, what I want to remind you of is that God sent himself. Like Jonah, one died so that we all might live. Jesus came to our storm-tossed world and threw himself into the waters of God's wrath so that we might survive. 
And though Jonah became like so many of the Old Testament figures, a picture pointing forward to Jesus, the differences between Jonah and Jesus are staggering. Jonah was cast out of that boat for his own sins. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of everyone else besides himself. Jonah only came near to death when he was thrown overboard, but Jesus passed under the true darkness of death for us. Jonah was an unwilling participant in God's mission, resistant to going, being sent by God, but Jesus eagerly came to earth in obedience to the Father. And so in a sense, reading Jonah chapter one, we should say, for Jesus, we rejoice. He's our better than Jonah savior who spent three days and nights in death for us. But I think our passage asks us to do more than just rejoice over Jesus. It wants us to go, to see ourselves as sent into a broken world where yes, evil exists everywhere. The sending God who sent himself wants to send us. You know, when Jonah ran from God, it says in the opening verses of this chapter that he went first before he tried to go to Tarshish to a little coastal town in Israel called Joppa. That's where he looked for a boat to carry him in the opposite direction from God's will. Centuries later, I don't know if you know this, in the book of Acts, it tells us that a small group of Christians were gathered together in that very same city, the city of Joppa. They were gathered in a little house. At the point of their meeting together, the church had been in existence for 10 years. It's been 10 years since Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. But even though 10 years had gone by, the church was still exclusively Jewish at that point. As the group prepared lunch downstairs, the apostle Peter, it says, was on the rooftop porch praying. And in his time of prayer, he saw a vision that came from God. It repeated itself three times. And the vision basically told him that he needed to leave Joppa and travel north on the coast of Israel to a town called Caesarea, where a Gentile Roman army officer and his whole household were ready to hear Peter preach to them. God was telling Peter in Joppa to preach to the non-Jewish nations about Jesus. And right there in Joppa, Peter had a decision. Do I run from God's mission? Do I pull a Jonah in the very city that Jonah pulled a Jonah? Or do I allow God to send me? Fortunately, for most of us here today who are not Jewish, Peter accepted God's invitation and the gospel began to go to the whole world. Joppa, the city known for Jonah's rebellion against God's plan to reach the Ninevites became the launching pad for God's plan to reach the nations. And we are the recipients as well as the conduits of that message called to preach it to our world. 
We are called to go if we're believers in Jesus because our God is still ascending God. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.